Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the Teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host, and today we will be talking with Chris Frank, who is the Chief Mission Officer for the National Eucharistic Congress. Prior to joining the National Eucharistic Congress team, Chris served as the Director of Youth Ministry at the parish level, and more recently, as the Vice President of Vagabond Missions. Chris has also been privileged to travel around the country, sharing the gospel with teens and adults at retreats, camps, conferences, and parish missions. Over the years, he has contributed to various evangelical and catechetical writing projects and publications. In 2020, Chris published his first book, Hope Always, an Anchor for Life's Storms. He's a graduate of the Franciscan University, where he also serves as an adjunct professor of catechetics. Chris lives in Steubenville, Ohio, with his wife, Grace, and their five children. So, Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Father. Well, it's great to have you with us. And uh, what we always like to do at the beginning of our program is give our guests an opportunity to share something about their background. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your upbringing? Yeah, of course. Would love to. So I'm currently in Ohio. And, uh, and grew up in this in this lovely state. Uh, so I grew up in the Toledo Diocese, this really small town called Tiffin, Ohio, and just had kind of the, the traditional upbringing. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Sandlot, um, but that was a lot of, of what my childhood was like, just riding bikes around, playing uh-huh. sports in people's backyards, and uh, was blessed uh, to be a part of Catholic schools uh, for my entire upbringing. Um, never had a youth group, never really had a parish that was offering much for for youth or, or teens. And so it was really the Catholic school that kind of gave me my first real touch into the church and the church's teachings. And then of course, my parents enforcing that with their own faith and our own family practices. But um, again, just kind of had that, that Midwest upbringing, um, playing sports, uh, hanging out with my family and friends. Um, But it was when I was in high school that uh, I started to have this, this, for lack of a better word, conversion moment. I've had countless throughout my life, mm-hmm. but uh, I went from thinking I was going to be a doctor to wanting to be a youth minister, which was pretty extreme considering I didn't know what a youth minister really was. I'd never been to a youth group, um, but that ended up being enough of a push to send me to Franciscan University where the, I'll, I won't say the rest is history, but started to really dive deeper into my faith, what it would look like to be a teacher, an educator, um, specifically for young people and young adults. 
which then allowed me to get into youth ministry. I served in a small parish in Florida, a very large parish in Houston, and then eventually started moving into nonprofits where I could have a little bit more of an impact and reach nationally. Um, and then for some reason, uh, God chose a, a schmuck like me to continue teaching in other capacities. So giving talks at retreats and conferences. So it's been a busy handful of years, uh, but now we are working um, with the revival, me and my family. And uh, I think that bio uh, is a little old. We have five kids, but uh, we just found out recently that number six is on the way. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So um, we have a whole litter of children now. And, um, and so we are living in student still trying to, serve the best we can um, and trying to live a missionary lifestyle, uh, even in the midst of some of the chaotic lifestyle of, of what it is to be a dad of now six. Well, I, w- I want to go back now. Uh, when you were in high school, I'm assuming that was a Catholic high school, Catholic high school. What was there someone that was kind of influential that kind of helped you kind of move into the idea of ministry and especially ministering to the young? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So it was my, um, ninth and 10th grade religion teacher slash soccer coach. And I've shared this story a couple times, but he, and again, there's, there's lots of people who I could give credit to, but he was really influential in me starting to not just see religion as another subject that you get at school, but as something that is really foundational, that kind of permeates all other elements of, of my life. And so it was, uh, it was actually detention of all places where he kind of broke through <laughs> and, uh-huh. um, and again, he was my soccer coach who already had a relationship and I wasn't a bad kid. I just was a kid. And so I uh, would act up in class and he'd give me detention. And when I would report to his class, uh, we would watch videos of Pele since we had soccer in common. So for me, detention was something that I really looked forward to because uh, I, could, I, could, I could watch I could watch this great soccer player and then go to practice and try and emulate what I had just seen moments earlier. And so that was kind of our routine um, between me, my coach and well, coach slash teacher. And then after a soccer season, once there was no more Pele, no more videos. Um, instead, there was just he and I in this classroom. And so he sat down next to me and we had some banter, some back and forth, but eventually he just kind of turned the conversation to God and simply asked me how, how God is loving me. And I remember being like a 15, 16 year old kid and not knowing the answer to that. Like, again, I was in Catholic schools I probably could have gotten that right on a quiz, but when he asked it so pointedly and it was such a personal, intimate moment and I couldn't give him a clear answer, it it rubbed me the wrong way. And so it kind of just did enough to where I kind of opened my heart a little bit. I wanted to know that answer. And again, it was a slow and long process, but I started to pay attention a little bit more in mass, started to pay attention a little bit more in school, and then started to develop my own spiritual life, always trying to come back to that answer of where is God loving me and how is he doing it? So really, it was kind of like you're uh, basically coming alive at that time. Was that probably why you saw the young uh, you know, like uh, teenagers and young adults as kind of a focal point? I think so. Yeah. I mean, again, I was at such an influential part of, of my life, my upbringing, the way that I saw the world and the paradigms that I was kind of positioning myself within. And again, my teacher found me in that place and pointed me towards Jesus. And so I think for me, there was a piece of of me as I started getting into the faith that I want to be able to do that for other young people. Mm-hmm. And and now as I get older, you know, my, my 
audience is shifting a bit. I'm speaking more to adults and, but, but I'm always going to have a, a soft spot in my heart for, for youth, for teens and for young adults, because I think it's again, such a, a turbulent and, and unknown time for them. So to be a voice of reason and truth, um, I think is a real privilege. That's outstanding. Hey, we're going to, we're going to shift gears because I know that what you're about now is really about the national Eucharistic revival. And I'm sure we've all heard about it. And as it's described, it's a three-year initiative by the U.S. bishops that aims to inspire, educate, and unite the faithful in a more intimate relationship with Jesus in the Eucharist. Well, uh, as someone that's kind of in the whole process of it, how do you? How is it going? How are things doing? It's going well. I have been so personally, I've been so blessed by this, this initiative and by this movement within the church. Um, this is all about Eucharistic devotion and bringing people back to the liturgy and the beautiful truth of our church and what we have in the sacrament. Um, and so to be a part of that, just personally for me, first and foremost, has been so enriching. Mm -hmm. Um, but also to now be in a position where I get to help other people come around this season within our church, uh, has been a real joy. So part of what I do is I work with parish leaders to help bring about the revival at the local level with grassroots efforts and to be able to have this front row seat to, to be in conversations with parish leaders and to see what they're doing and how God is moving in their, their church has been really powerful because I do think God's doing really new things. This isn't, this isn't just a, a program. I, I love how Bishop Cousin says it. He's like, we're not interested in starting a program. We want to start a fire. And, right. and I really think that's what I'm starting to see as, as people start to wrap their minds and their hearts around this moment. Uh, I think we're really starting to see the beginning of, of a new life, a new season um, within the church. And, and, and at the center of all of that is the Blessed Sacrament. Mm -hmm. You know, I come uh, into the Catholic Church as a convert, uh, spent many years in, of course, in Protestantism and ministry. And the idea of revival to me is really one that that goes beyond information uh, to, as Bishop Cousins is describing it, really coming on fire. And, um, and, and so I was encouraged to hear that, that those are the kinds of things that, that you see going on in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's right. And I think it, we're, we're saying this is a revival, but I don't want that to be misleading because revival is God's work. Right. And so really what oh, yeah. we're doing is we're we're trying to put the church and ourselves in a position where we can be before God and plead and ask for a revival where mm -hmm. God's going to come and do the heavy lifting. We're offering some resources and some some things the church can do to, again, be open to that moment. But a lot of what we're doing is simply trying to put ourselves in a disposition and in a place where God can really move powerfully in our lives. I think that's a, a, a really key thing for us to understand is what we're doing is placing ourselves in a position where revival can happen. It's right. not we're trying to manufacture it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, we can say it's revival, but but real revival is an act of God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, we're in a, the year of the parish. And yeah. I know in our, in our local parish here, we're looking at things going on. Uh, and the event is now kind of taking on more of a localized uh, presence. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit in a few minutes about uh, small group resources but what is, especially you're involved with parishes, what is your hope for this phase? How, how does this phase different from where we have been in the, uh, the previous year? Yeah, yeah, sure. And so I can even give you kind of a 
30,000 foot view of, of this whole initiative that the bishops have called for, because it's not just a couple resources. It's not even a year. It's actually a three year movement um, that the church has called for, that our leaders have called for. And so year right. one was the diocesan year. And this was really a year and time for the bishops to come around this idea of revival and the diocesan leaders, those in the the chanceries and those in positions of power to start to plan and strategize and pray and fast for the revival to kind of get things behind the scenes ready to get moving at the parish level. And so for me, as I've heard about the revival, I was always looking to, to year two, which is where we are now the parish mm-hmm. year where we go to the grassroots, we go to the local communities and to the parishes to bring about a moment where revival can, can take root. And so that's where we are now. And just to quickly let you know where we're going is, is year three will be the year of missionary sending where the church has always been an organization that existed for its non-members just as much as its current members. Right. Uh, but we really want to empower the church to begin to go out and to be um, missionary and to be um, evangelical insofar as bringing the gospel and Jesus to our neighbors and our coworkers and to those that we see in the streets. And so, so that's kind of the big picture. And like I said, we're now in year two where we are really trying to get our parish leaders um, engaged with this moment and trying to bring about opportunities to where revival can take root at the local parish. I know that in a, a few minutes ago, you're talking about resources that are being made available. And I know that you've probably been involved uh, along with the Augustan Institute in the production of a new Eucharistic-based uh, faith formation uh, small group. Uh, I guess you would call it kind of a curriculum that you have called Jesus and the Eucharist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Jesus and the Eucharist is a small group study that was a collaboration of work between the Augustan Institute and the USCCB. And it's a, it's a video series that is seven sessions long, and they're really plug and play. Um, they are really geared so that anyone who is looking to not just learn more about their faith, but looking for community can come and be a part of this study. It's totally free, um, available to everybody. Uh, but the parishes have been asked to offer this study um, to, again, not only bring about greater formation around the church's teaching, but to offer a small group series where community can take greater root at the local level. Okay, and I'm like, I'm in a parish of about 3,500 families. Mm-hmm. It's a busy place, a lot of activities, uh, a lot of prayer groups, discipleship groups, other small groups, and things like that. Uh, how do you recommend that a, a larger parish with a lot of things going on, and even smaller parishes are very busy, how do they incorporate something new into parish life? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's probably a thousand ways to answer that. And I don't want to ever make it sound like there's a one size fits all, because I think we know working for the church, it can get messy and we have to be able to adapt and to be um, willing to do what is necessary and uh, going to serve the, the local parishioners the best. But what I've been seeing from parishes who have already started this study, it's, it's usually been one of two things. One, they're taking all of those things that are already in place, and they've simply asked that they take seven weeks and do this um, as the group that's already formed. And so if there's a men's group and maybe they're doing a Bible study or they're watching videos from an apostle like that man is you, um, they've asked them to now look at this to be a part of the revival, um, which I think has gone really well. 
Um, other people have just started a, a new thing and they said, we know this is one of, of many things that we're offering, but in the context of where the church is with the revival, they've invited the parish to be a part of this. And so they've just kind of prioritized it. Um, and again, I'll even give a bonus third option because again, we want this to be utilized and, and the goal is twofold. So I don't want to miss that. It is to bring about community and it is about to bring about great formation around the Eucharist. But uh, some people have just said, this is available online. It's free. Make sure you check it out at your convenience, which again, kind of takes away some of the community elements of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've seen parishes promoting this even to the individual. And I know for for me and for my family, my wife have, have watched it on my phone at night. Um, it is tough for us to get to programs um, at our parish right now with five little kids and one on the way. Um, and so it has been kind of nice to take a break from Netflix and watch something a little bit more edifying with my mm -hmm. wife. Um, so there's lots of ways to partake in this study. Um, but again, going back to your question, um, we've seen parishes really kind of promote it or ask parishes that are already, or rather small groups that are established to just partake in what is, what is available. And how long are, are each of the videos? Sure. So the videos are a little long, but it's because conversation and breaks are baked into the videos. And so the videos are just under two hours long. So it's long, okay. but again, it, it moves quickly because you'll listen to the host or the speaker or a testimony, and then it'll say, now talk about that. And it'll prompt you with a couple questions. And so it's not like you're just sitting in front of a screen for two hours. It's letting you have some information to think about and then giving you a chance to talk it through and discuss it with those that you're with, which again is part of the, I think, beauty of this, this program, because again, the, the community element is, is so well thought through that, that this isn't just supposed to be information, but it's supposed to be communal. So like uh, our uh, Batman is you group meets on Saturday morning, they have about 45 minutes for content. So are these easily uh, sectioned off and uh, maybe spread over a longer period of time? Yeah, I think some groups have done that. Um, you know, they weren't made to, to do that, but some groups are finding creative ways to just find a good place to pause it and then pick it up the next week. And so I think that's totally doable. And like I was saying before, at the parish level, you know, you just have to be flexible and find a way to make things work for the groups that you have and the time that you have available. And so... We are seeing some groups do that, and we're hearing that's working well, um, too. Mm -hmm, okay. What about uh, schools, Catholic schools? Are there ways that uh, you've seen these videos being incorporated into, into school, uh, either as a curriculum or uh, option or something else? Yeah. So um, I just had a diocese reach out and say that they are going to use these videos in the classrooms. Um, the thing, I, again, I like about this this video series is that it's beautiful. It's really well done. The theology is crystal clear. And because it's so clear, it's easy to understand. Uh, I mean, the Eucharist is one of the central mysteries of the church. Um, the fact that we believe a piece of bread becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus doesn't look like Jesus, doesn't taste like Jesus, but we believe it's Jesus. That can be hard to understand. But these videos do a great job making it so tangible and so real that this school is going to use it with their students. Um, I know another school uh, down in Houston, they're going to use it uh, just with their teachers to give them a chance for formation so that they can come together as a faculty to sit, to study, to converse, and to have better community 
just amongst the leaders of the school. So there's multiple ways in which I'm seeing schools get involved with the revival and specifically with this small group study. Oh, that's a great way to do it is through like faculty faith formation, because then that can mm-hmm. kind of trickle down in exactly. comments that the teachers are saying. Now, um, uh, as wonderful it was as it would be for you to be on that video for two hours uh, for seven different series, I, I think you've got a number of people that are actually involved in producing these each of these videos. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you get uh, a you get plenty of voices. Um, some some voices you might know, some faces you may recognize, uh, but some um, are just people that have had a great encounter with the Eucharist, and so I think they've done a great job diversifying the the voices and the way the teaching is. Um, laid out. So it's not just another talking head or another professional Catholic that everyone knows or has heard before. So there, there's enough there to keep it fresh and to keep it interesting. And like I said, to, to keep those videos moving, it's two hours, but they go pretty quick. Are there other ways that you could see schools uh, integrating uh, this particular uh, small group curriculum? Yeah. Um, I do. And again, this is just one of many resources we have. And so if there's teachers listening to this, I would suggest that they would look at these videos and see how they think they could best utilize it. Um, Again, from the testimonies to the teachings to the small group questions, I think there's plenty that you could kind of plug and play, cut and splice to use for your teens and for your classroom. But also, um, again, we have other resources, including a school playbook, which will offer other opportunities and ideas for teachers to be able to bring some of the revival into the school and into the classroom. Okay. And is, are there, there's a lot of parish resources too, then in addition to the school playbook? Yep. Yeah. So what we ended up doing is we, at the beginning of this year, we, we had a parish playbook, which kind of launched the, the vision for what the revival year would be for the parish. And we took that resource and we molded it for what that could look like for a school. And so it is somewhat of, of a complementary piece to the, the overall vision of the revival, but still something unique and pointed for the classroom. As we know, the classroom can be very different from the liturgy or from religious education programs that happen at the church. Okay. So for uh, schools or for uh, parish leaders, uh, where is it that they need to go on the, on the web to find a lot of these resources you're talking about? Yep. So go to uh, eucharisticrevival.org and there you can find revival resources. The school playbook that I just mentioned is in the final days of, uh, of, of, being published. And so it's not there yet, but probably by the time this, this podcast goes live, um, it'll be at the uh, Eucharistic Revival website, eucharisticrevival.org. Wonderful, wonderful. You know, I was, uh, I, I love, and you referred to it a little bit uh, earlier, uh, the quote from uh, Bishop Cousins, uh, who's the, of course, the chair of the National Eucharistic Revival. And he said, our hope is that the fire which burned in the hearts of the first Christians begins to burn in our hearts in a new and powerful way so that we can't help but share with others what is burning within us. I I just love Mm -hmm. that statement. When you think about the Eucharistic revival in these three years, uh, it's at one point, of course, it's going to be over with. What what do you as leaders of this movement, what do you hope are the long-term fruits that 
will experience within the church. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. The, the revival movement will end. It's a three-year initiative. But my hope is that it doesn't. You know, of course, like the the, the outline and the plan will, will, will hit 2025 and the revival will be over. But I hope the fruit and the movement continues. I, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. And uh-huh. if we could look at the various studies around where we're at as a church, what people believe in the Eucharist and and go down that rabbit hole. But the reality is, is that our God is a God of more. And, and I don't think even if we do everything perfectly for the next year and a half, as we finish out this revival movement, that we will have exhausted everything there is to exhaust when it comes to the Eucharist, mm-hmm. our faith and greater devotion as a church. And so my hope is that this is a springboard into a new life and a new season for the church where we can continue to grow in devotion and community and evangelization as the Catholic church. It seems to me that a lot of these things, once you provide these kinds of opportunities, that there's a lot of grassroots thing that can grow up. Uh, one of the things that's been kind of exciting to see happening with within a, probably what, maybe the last uh, 20 to 30 years is the increase in adoration chapels in, in mm-hmm. uh, churches, where that was never really thought about. Now, many churches have 24-7 adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. So, yeah. So, so what are you? It's just uh, beautiful. Are these things that are you seeing that there could be kind of a even a greater impetus, maybe in uh, an adoration or uh, maybe hopefully maps mass attendance might get back up to where it needs to be. For sure, I think for me, when I look at at everything, mass attendance and, and getting people back to the sacred liturgy would would obviously be the ultimate goal. But how beautiful is it that that Jesus is present to us in the Eucharist twenty four seven, and so many parishes are taking advantage of that with perpetual adoration. Um, this year in the parish year, again, we've had different invitations or pillars that we're asking every parish to partake in. One thing we've asked parishes to do is to have um, nights of adoration. We're calling them encounter nights where people can come and just have a moment with Jesus. And so we've left a lot of room for interpretation for the parishes to to fit adoration into their schedule. But uh, for the parish to come together before the Blessed Sacrament, uh, I hope is is a long-term fruit that we see from this revival, that it's not just something we do for the next eight to 12 months, but it's something that continues to bless the church and church communities for years to come. Yeah, I know with, uh, with youth, especially uh, when I was uh, president of a local Catholic high school, uh, some of our students, especially after being influenced by going to the Steubenville conferences, uh, NCYC, some of these other things that are going on, uh, they came back and wanted to do a monthly uh, night of adoration at the school for the students. And it was student-led, student-driven, student-initiated. And I think that's what gave it a lot of its uh, evergreen life. It just keeps on going because it's the student's idea. So Right. I, I just right. love I'm there. Yeah. So now one of the things that's also coming up is uh, the National Eucharistic Congress. Uh, next yeah. July in Indianapolis. Uh, what can you tell us about about the Congress itself? Yeah, so the Congress is going to be in Indianapolis, uh, July 17th to 21st, 2024. And again, if this revival is, is a movement of the church, uh, we want the Congress to be a moment within that movement, uh, that this is where the entire church can come together. And like I said, kind of put ourselves in a position where revival um, can really take flame. And as I said, that's 
going right into year three. And so that's where we come together and ideally empowered by the Holy Spirit and enriched by the Eucharist. We are sent out as Eucharistic missionaries into that third year of missionary sending where we can go back to our parishes and go back to our communities, bringing the light of Christ with us so that we can bring people back to the church and back into relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're really looking forward to this moment. Uh, Eucharistic Congresses used to be part of our church's history here in the States. Right. I believe the last one was like 80 years ago. And so we're trying our best to bring this back, to let this be part of, of our culture once again. And I think specifically coming out of the pandemic, where for so long we were isolated and told to stay away, to now come back and and to come back together in such a powerful way and make this sort of statement as a church, um, I think could be something really special. And we're praying that that God has something special in store for us. So uh, I'm assuming that space was going to be somewhat limited perhaps for this. Are, Are we still at a time where people can go ahead and explore coming and being a part Absolutely. I would love for people to take a look, pray, explore if they could be a part of this. This is really for everybody. Um, Hotels are going quickly. Um, That has been an uphill climb trying to make sure people have enough space. Um, But uh, we want everybody to come in, come be a part of this. We've even heard of a few groups who are wanting to camp or some people are going to stay in schools or on gym floors. They just want to be close to this and they want to be near to this. And so Absolutely. We still have space. Um, we're really excited to see who joins us. Um, but like I said, we're really praying that, that God has something special in store for us over those days. And I'm I'm uh, thinking that probably dioceses are uh, bringing busloads to try to get the... What are some uh, ideas for dioceses and parishes that you've heard uh, from people wanting to plan to come? Yep. Yeah, so a lot of dioceses I've been talking to are putting together a pilgrimage package. So like you said, it's the bus, they're working on the hotels, they're working on getting some meals, maybe some of them are working on special outings, or things they can do on the way to and from the event. And so, um, again, I think those are probably the most convenient packages to offer because there's a lot to to think about when you're making a national trip. And specifically for families like myself, we're already thinking around this. My wife and kids are planning on coming. Obviously I'm a part of this, this whole movement, but uh, when you have five kids, it's, it's a decision to, to go anywhere, let alone a whole different state. And so we're starting to wrap our minds around this. And even though we're going to get there and we're going to kind of have our, our system and our routine and I'll be working and probably running around like a crazy person most of the time, but uh, it would be really nice. Again, I think for those and leaders or people in the parish who want to bring a group to think around the whole package, what are we going to do for food? Where are we going to stay? And to present that um, to your parish, to your diocese, um, just to make it easy for people to think through kind of the top to bottom of this trip. If you go to our website, eucharisticcongress.org, um, the revival site and the Congress are linked. We have some resources there for group leaders to help them think through some of those logistics and how to best package that for those that they want to bring. So uh, for those that are probably listening to this podcast, and let's say they're involved in a local parish, but they haven't heard much yet about uh, initiatives in their local parish, what uh, what suggestions would you give to them uh, in terms of maybe helping to get the parish more involved in more uh in connection with uh, with these uh, small group resources and everything. Yeah, absolutely. So 
first thing I would do is if this is the first you're hearing about it, I would go to the website and look to see all that's happening. Make sure you kind of understand the movement, the moment, and what the church has called us to. And then once you understand this revival, I would suggest you go and talk to your pastor. Um, there are some pastors who are all in. There are other pastors who are just busy and aren't quite sure if they have time for something like this. And I think there are even some pastors who still haven't heard much about this themselves. And so to go in a position of humility, a disposition of humility, um, and say, have you heard about this? Could we do something with this? Um I think is a great way to invite your parish into this moment and into this season of the church. Um, and then hopefully that starts a conversation and, um, and brings about an openness to the revival um, coming to the parish. Well, Chris, that's, uh, that's really good. Uh, I think good counsel go in humility, go and just see if there are ways in which we can really get involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, if uh the web resources are available. Give us the the uh, the web addresses again one more time. Yep. So eucharisticrevival.org mm-hmm. and then eucharisticcongress.org. Um, and then there's also Eucharistic Pilgrimage, which we haven't even talked about, but there's a pilgrimage happening and that's eucharisticpilgrimage.org. Okay. Tell us about that. What is the Eucharistic Pilgrimage? Yeah, so out of everything we've talked about, um, it's all exciting, but I think this is unique and deserves a little bit of attention of its own. So I'm glad we get to talk about this. So um, so leading up to the Congress, um, we're going to have a National Eucharistic Pilgrimage. And to say we're going to have a National Eucharistic Pilgrimage is already sort of misleading because it's actually four pilgrimages. And so it's going to come from the north, south, east, and west. And Jesus is going to begin at... Um, various locations and over two months um, is going to process across the country with all four routes converging in Indianapolis at the beginning of the Congress in July. And so as we begin to plan this out and map this out, we're going to have people who walk with Jesus for two months. But as Jesus comes through your town, we're going to have countless other people hopefully join us for those days or for those moments when Jesus is processing through. And so our hope is that this moment could could reach potentially 100,000 people as we bring Jesus across the country, again, all leading up to the 10th National Eucharistic Congress. I know that uh, one of the uh, pilgrimages is coming through Kansas City. And I think our parish is being contacted about being one of the stopping places because we have a huge parking lot where... Uh, we can have some of the people gather. Uh, and we're, we're talking about a small group that's traveling for the two uh, the two months, correct? Yep. And then yep. uh, probably uh, I can just think of uh, uh, people from that area just joining for what, maybe a couple of miles or a couple of hours or whatever. Is that kind of the idea? That Yep, that's exactly right. It's going to be a couple of young adults, young legs, young backs, you know, um, walking for two months. Um, but then there'll be multiple events. Um, the diocese um, have already been let um, and kind of let known the plans and the timing so they can start to plan these these moments within the cities. And so it sounds like like your diocese is already thinking around things. I know here in Steubenville, um, the pilgrimage is also coming through. So I know they're thinking of some creative ways. Right. And for me and my family, we won't walk from, I think, the track that we're on is actually starting over in Connecticut. We're, we're not going to go to Connecticut, but we'll, we'll walk for a couple miles when Jesus is here in town with us and we'll, we'll partake that way. So, 
Yeah. So again, you can go to the pilgrimage site and look at the tracks, look at the um, routes and see how you could perhaps get involved um, as Jesus comes near you. Well, that sounds really exciting. And what a great way uh, to walk with Jesus, but then to walk with your brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, to be in, uh, you know, as a part of a visible expression of adoration in front of of your community, in front of your city. That's that's going to be a, a, an amazing thing to behold when it when it happens. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited to see that part of uh, of this revival movement. Well, Chris, we want to thank you so much for being our guest today and follow to lead. And uh, again, I because these we we're on uh, uh, video and audio. Uh, they can go to what what are the three websites again? EucharisticRevival.org, EucharisticCongress.org, or EucharisticPilgrimage.org. And all those sites are linked together. And so if you remember one of those links, you'll find the other two as you get to the website. Oh, wonderful. Hey, thanks again. And uh, I appreciate you so much taking the time today to be with us uh, on this uh, podcast. Oh, it was a pleasure. Come back anytime. And uh, for more information about the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative, uh, please visit our website at diaschools.org. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow our podcast and be sure to leave a comment to encourage us toward future programming. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.